All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Thomas. I'm part of the pastoral staff here. We're really glad that you could join us today. Today's a lively Sunday. It's awesome. Glad that we are all here today. And again, if you are interested in membership, we hope you can stick around for the info session. If you signed up for membership classes already, going, yeah, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take membership for sure. Uh, We do invite you to stick around and so that you can know what lies ahead for you. But again, if you didn't sign up or if you have like zero intention of signing up, but you're just curious, you just want to know what membership's about here, you can stick around as well. We welcome anybody to come and stay so you can learn about membership here and would love for you to stay here as well. So uh, that being said, if this is your first time here, we've been going through a sermon series. It's titled the journey of faith, and we've been taking just each week looking at stories in the Bible, passages in the scriptures to describe what it looks like to journey with Jesus. And so today we're going to be looking at another story from the Old Testament. It comes from Genesis chapter 32. It's a bizarre story, and yet one, if you grew up in the church, you might be familiar with. It's a story of Jacob at the end of his life. Uh, Genesis chapter 32, we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 8, and then we're going to skip down to verse 22 to 32. And here in our church, we believe when we read the scriptures that the Lord, he's alive and he speaks to us. So can we all rise together? And we're going to read this passage and acknowledge his presence here as we read it. So starting in verse 3, Genesis chapter 32. It writes, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, in the territory of Edom. He commanded them, you are to say to my Lord Esau, this is what your servant Jacob says. I have been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female slaves. I have sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you. And he has 400 men with him. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps along with flocks, herds, and camels. He thought, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. Jumping down to verse 22. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two slave women, and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with all his possessions. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled him until daybreak. When a man saw he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob said to him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, limping because of his hip, and that is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket, because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, we invite your spirit to be here, awaken our souls, and speak to us, O Lord, in the ways, O Lord, that we need to be spoken to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So as I mentioned before I read the scripture passage, we're going through this sermon series called A Journey of Faith. 
which pretty much were describing what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does that journey look like? And we proposed, they're generally speaking, six stages that followers of Jesus experience. And it's on the screen here. The first stage is the recognition of God, that there is life in this world, but we recognize that there's a God behind all of it. There is grace and forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. And then stage two is all about the, the life of discipleship. What does it look like to follow Jesus, to do what he does? And that's where like the spiritual practices and disciplines come into our life. And then stage three is the active life. It is a life of service, how we give and serve and offer ourselves to one another. And for most Christians, that's it. That's the end of the journey. And what happens for, because a lot of churches, they don't know what goes beyond that. For a lot of Christians, we've never been taught what's more than that. So we just stop. Sometimes people, they get stuck in a stage. Uh, we call it the box. Uh, in my tradition, I'm more of the Reformed background. So oftentimes they call people who are Reformed a cage Calvinist. They're like in a cage and you're just kind of stuck in your ways. Or sometimes you just kind of go back and forth where you go from stage three to stage one, you go to conference and you start serving, you start reading your Bible, back and forth, back and forth, but you get kind of stuck and you don't really feel yourself moving forward in your growth and intimacy with God until you get to stage four. And oftentimes stage four, what they describe as the inward journey, it gets sparked for a lot of people by a crisis. That crisis could be some crazy event that happens or it could just be something really slow and subtle like aging. It's usually a very, this stage is a painful, long, avoided stage. We don't like going through this stage. And the reason why it's so painful is because this is when, for the first time perhaps, you are forced to be intimate with God. You are forced to practice vulnerability and open your life to him. And that's a very scary thing for people to do. And so last week, we looked at a story that just described that whole entire stage four of what the inward journey looks like. But today, what I want to do is I want to focus on a stage within the stage, because this is so important. And this stage is what's known as the wall. A lot of us, we get stuck at stage four, the journey inward, because even though you go through a crisis, it doesn't mean that you have grown through that crisis. There's a lot of people who go like, oh, I'm totally in stage five, like I'm just growing my faith because I went through this, this, this. But just because you went through suffering, that does not mean that you have grown or spiritually matured. Because what often stops you is this thing that a lot of Christians call the wall. Different names for this. Some people call it the dark night of the soul. Some people call it a spiritual depression. Whatever you want to call it, most Christians actually talk about this experience in the Christian life where you just are in a deep, low, dark place. This deep struggle with God. Oftentimes the wall, it appears in the midst of a crisis. It's always been there, but you notice it in a crisis. Oftentimes, people encounter the wall multiple times. Sometimes, some people say it's like two to three times in a lifetime. Some people say it's like five to ten times. If you say, man, I went through the wall a hundred times, a little bit intense, that's no, usually not the norm. Usually, like three to five times, I hear people who've been writing stuff about this, they experience their wall moments. Everybody's wall is different. Everyone goes through a wall, but everyone's experience of that wall looks different. Just because, again, you encountered the wall, it does not mean you broke through. It does not mean you emerged. It's a slow break oftentimes. Brick by brick, it is slow and steady. And again, just to emphasize, the wall is not the crisis in your life. When you say, oh my goodness, someone, something happened, like I lost my job, the wall. No, that's not the wall. The wall is not the crisis. The wall is what emerges in light of the crisis. It's something that happens in the midst of crisis. And so I try to look up a definition, like how do you kind of encapsulate what the wall is? And this is one definition that I would propose. It is the, the core beliefs that you have about yourself, other people, and God. 
there's these core beliefs that you've had, that you've developed over time, trauma, pain, philosophy, whatever it is, your family of origin, this belief system that you have that you use to protect yourself. And even though you're a Christian, it's still there. It's still there protecting you. And the reason why we don't sense the presence of God often in our lives is not because God is not present. He's always present. The Bible says he's present everywhere. But the wall blinds us to really sense his presence in front of us. And you know you're hitting the wall when you are experiencing deep pain, when it feels very humiliating, and especially you are never the same afterwards. You will never be the same once you hit the wall. Because one or two things happen when you hit the wall. You either become very bitter and hardened and darkened and cynical, or you begin to surrender. You get soft. You get humbler. Now, why do we need to experience the wall? Why is this a part of the journey? I think one reason why is because most of you, if you grew up in the church and you believe in Jesus, you know how to say to all the right things, but deep down inside of you, you don't really need Jesus. You're not really relying upon Jesus. You are still relying upon yourself. That's like, no problem. I don't need to go to church. You know, just a couple of Sundays off is all good. I don't really need scripture. I don't really need this. It's nice for me. It's a nice addition, but do I need it? Not really. Because you're kind of saying you don't really need God. You're functional in your life. You're good with your life. You're still relying upon yourself. You're still attached to the things of this world. And what happens is when you stay in that state, that's when your faith becomes very stagnant. That's when life gets, that's why God almost needs to break you and awaken you so that you could sense, oh my gosh, something's blocking me from my need for God. Pete Scazzaro, he's an author and pastor. I like the way he says it's on the screen. He says it on the quote. Back there, he says, without an understanding of the wall on the journey, Countless sincere followers of Christ stagnate there and no longer move forward with God's purpose for their lives. Some of us hide behind our faith to flee the pain of our lives rather than trust God to transform us. It's through the wall that you get transformed. And so, in light of this, what, how do you experience the wall? What is that experience like? And most especially, how do you break through? What does it look like on the other side? And that's where I find the story of Jacob to be very fascinating. Jacob, anybody know his grandfather? Who's Jacob's grandfather is? Abraham. His father Abraham. The first person to encounter Yahweh and who Yahweh makes a covenant with in Genesis. Anybody know who Jacob's dad is? Ah, less, less answers. Isaac. His father Isaac. He was his son. And so Jacob, growing up, he grew up in what's the equivalent of a pastor's home. He just heard all these stories about God from Abraham, from Isaac, the promises of God, the covenant. He knows it all. And yet, if you know the story of Jacob, you know that he was a bad pastor's kid. He was the bad PK. He grew up knowing about God, but Yahweh was not his God. He deceived all the time. He just made sure that he tried to take things all the time. He stole his birthright from his twin brother. He stole the blessing from his twin brother. And it wasn't until Jacob ran away from home that he had for the first time a real encounter with God. Here's a picture of an encounter that Jacob had. This is famously known as the Stairway to Heaven. Led Zeppelin wrote a great song about that. So this is the Stairway to Heaven. Jacob had this vision of the stairway that opened up the heavens. And that's the first time Yahweh became Jacob's God, where he's like, this God I heard about, he's now my God. And you would think if you encountered God this way, your life would change. You're like, dude, I am now going to follow God the rest of my life. And kind of, like, 
After this moment, Jacob, like, yeah, Yahweh's his God, but he was still a deceiver. He lived in Haran for 20 years, and he worked with his uncle, and it was really bad. And he, in other words, this is like almost his conversion moment, his altar call. But like a lot of us, he just carried on life just like normal, as if the altar call never happened. Until Genesis 32, the passage we just read. Jacob is now about 60 years old. Some say he's even 90 years old, but he's an old man when this time comes around. He encounters God again in the passage we just read. And I would argue this is Jacob's wall moment. This is when he faces the wall because after this moment, everything changes for Jacob. This is the moment Jacob encounters God in a very unique way. And I feel like what we could learn is when we see the way Jacob experiences the wall, we could learn what it looks like for us if we experience the wall. And so if you are experiencing the wall right now, or if you don't know what this is, but one day you just sense God's going to just encounter you in this deep way, there are a couple of things I want us to take away from this passage. Five brief observations. It'll be very brief, so don't worry. It's not going to be five times as long. Five observations about the wall, and we'll look at it one at a time. What happens at the wall? Here's number one. The wall makes you deal with your past. I'm going to be going through, by the way, fire hydrants, so forgive me if each of these feel brief, but I have five. But when you hit the wall, what God is doing is he's inviting you to deal with your past, perhaps for the first time. Genesis 32, let's look at it again. It begins with Jacob sending messengers ahead of him, and the messengers go to his brother Esau. Look at verse 3 to 5, look what it says. Jacob sent messengers ahead to his brother Esau. Esau is his twin, by the way, in the land of Seir, the territory of Edom. He commanded them, you're to say to my Lord Esau. He calls his brother Lord. Interesting. This is what your servant Jacob says. I've been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female slaves. I've sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. He calls his brother his Lord. I have a brother. I've never called him my Lord. Like, what is going on here? And this isn't just some honorific thing that everybody talks to each other about. There's a reason why Jacob's doing this. It's because of their history. If you know the history of Jacob and Esau, they were twins, and they were fighting since the womb. Like, in the belly, they're wrestling in the belly. That's what Genesis talks about. When, the belt, when they both came out, you see Jacob, like, holding on to Esau's ankle. And the reason why that happened in Genesis is because the firstborn, they get all the rights and all the inheritance. So Esau came out first, and Jacob's holding on to him. So unfortunately, he was, like, five seconds late. Esau is now the firstborn. Jacob is the secondborn. And so what happened was, Jacob, as they got older, and not when they're little kids, but when they're, like, older, like, at least teens, maybe probably 20s or so, Jacob tricks Esau, sell him his birthright. He tricks his dad, sell me Esau's blessing. And then they get, when Esau finds out, he is so angry that the last thing that Jacob heard from his brother Esau was Esau saying, I'm going to kill you. Like, my brother, he's dead. And so that's what caused Jacob to run away. He ran away to Haran, and he worked with his uncle Laban, and he was there for 20 years. And now for the first time, he's going to meet Esau again. It's been 20 years since he saw his brother. And again, the last thing his brother said to him is, you're going to die. I'm going to kill you. And so what's going to happen? Is, is uh, Esau still angry? Let's find out. Verse 6 to 8, look what it says. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you. And he has 400 men with him. Woo, that's a fight. Looks like a fight. And how did Jacob respond? He was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps, along with the flocks and herds and camels, and he thought if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. Now here's a question we have to ask. So you see your brother, he's, you think he's angry, he 
feel like he's going to kill you, he has 400 men, why would you divide your camp? Go, hey, let's separate it here or so forth. If I was Jacob, I'm like, hey, here's what we're going to do. We've got to run. Like, let's run. Let's bounce right now. Why does Jacob choose to stay and just strategize by dividing the camp? And the reason why is because of why Jacob is even here in the first place. Why is Jacob even coming back to the land? Why he's coming back home? It's because of chapter 31, verse 3, a few chapters before this. It's on the screen. This is why Jacob came back. The Lord said to him, Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and your family, and I will be with you. He's telling him, you have to go back because the promises are with you. And it's really fascinating is in the Bible, and especially in the Pentateuch, the first five books, there's only one other time that God tells somebody, you have to go back to the land that you came from. You know when the other time was? Moses. There's only one other time that he told someone, go back to your land. And it's really a bizarre story. This is like something you can look at later. Exodus chapter 4, there's this weird story where he, God says, go back to Egypt. Moses goes back to Egypt. And on his way, God tries to kill Moses. You're like, what's going on? And then his wife comes and circumcises him. It's bizarre. But the main thing is, why does God tell Moses to go back to Egypt and then tries to kill him? And the reason why is because he goes back to Egypt to free Israel, but Moses, he actually killed somebody in Egypt, and that murder has to be dealt with. And so some type of like ritual has to take place to purify Moses before he goes back to Egypt. Jacob, same thing. He's going back to his hometown. He's going back home. The covenant needs to be fulfilled, but something has to take place first. He has to deal with his past. He has to deal with Esau. So one theologian, his name is John Walton, he says like this, is on the screen. He says, quote, God wanted Moses to go back to Egypt, but he had some baggage, blood guilt, that God did not want him to take along. The Lord is ready for Jacob to return to Canaan, but there is baggage that he cannot take. These must be cared for before they can return to do God's work. And that baggage was Esau. That baggage was his past. So what's the relevance for us? Just know when you experience the wall, it is most likely a time where God, he is calling you to go back to your past before you can move forward with God's work. And the reason why is because a lot of you, your past has a huge impact on your present. And until that is healed, it's going to leak in all your relationships. And if you've been part of a church for a while, you know this is kind of our jam. We talk about a lot, dude, you got to know your past. You got to explore your past. All your relationship dysfunctions, all the struggles you have in your dating life, your marriage life, your friendship life, so much of it is because of not them, it's you. More specifically, it's the way you're raised, your family of origin. And for some of us here, you've never done a deep dive into your past. You never got to see what happened, how you were raised, how your culture, your mom, your dad, your lack of mom and dad, the divorce, the, the deaths in your family, how that really impacted you. And you can never move forward unless you deal with that. You can never move forward until there's actually healing in that. Now that's, most of you though, again, you've been at our church, you know that's true. You've done a deep dive into your past. In fact, I know a lot of you, you went to therapy, which is really helpful. It helps you just to understand your past. But you are still not healed from your past. You know your past, you're aware of it, but you haven't moved forward. Here's why I know this. When I saw a therapist the past few years, I still remember my, well, he was, we were having a conversation, and we are talking about one of my pain points in my life. 
He said, oh, so tell me about your upbringing. And I was like, oh, you know, this is my basic upbringing. He said, well, tell me, like, what were the hard parts? And I was like, well, you know, I grew up immigrant family. I grew up a lot of racism because I was the only Asian person. I grew up my grandmother. She was my caretaker, but then she randomly disappeared and she passed away. So, you know, that was really tough. And then, you know, my parents, they weren't really home that often. So that was tough as well. I had close friends and there was sometimes drama there. But yeah, that was pretty much my past. And he's all like, wow, we got we to look at that one by one and process that. And I was like, Why? Like, I'm very aware of my past. I'm very aware of, like, how my grandma, how that was hard. I'm very aware of, like, what happened in, like, my childhood. Very aware. He says, I know you're aware, but you are so emotionless. Why are you, you're so emotionless talking about it? And I remember that was the first time I got so aware, like, wow, like, I thought I was good with my past because I knew it. I could articulate it to you very well, but I haven't emotionally processed it. And that's the hardest part of your past. It's not the fact that you're not aware of your past, it's that there are wounded emotions you experience and you have not emotionally processed those wounds. I still remember talking to a sister and talking to her, she was in college, and I was like, hey, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about her childhood, rough childhood. Her parents were like, her parents passed away when she was young. She hasn't seen her dad in a long time. She has step parents and so forth. I was like, wow, that's really hard. She's like, it's hard, but I moved on. I was like, that's a strange reaction. I was like, are you sure? Like, are you not, isn't that sad when you think about it? She's like, I'm not sad. And then one slow teardrop, like slowly coming down. And I was like, wow, that's so fascinating. Like, we understand our past, but you don't know how to feel your past. And that's a clear sign that, oh, you haven't really dealt with it. Do you know how you know when you dealt with your past, where you've emotionally processed it? Do you know what's a good sign of it? I heard this from someone I thought was helpful. You're able to access the proper emotions when you talk about it. When you talk about your parents getting a divorce and it's robotic, you haven't really dealt with it. When you could feel that sadness as you're sharing, it doesn't mean you're breaking down every time, but you just feel the sadness. Oh, that's, that's healthy. That's good. But a lot of us, you have buried your emotions all your life. And as we talked about last week, they don't stay buried. It leaks it leaks. And what the wall does is this is God's invitation. Hey, you've been running for a long time from all those wounds and you need healing. Like you need real healing. Therapy is nice, but you need God's presence into your past and you can never move forward unless you deal with it. The wall, it makes us not just know about our past, but you're called to deal with it. And that's how we move forward. Here's the second thing that the wall makes you aware of. It's not just dealing with your past, but the second thing is this. It makes you aware of your present. Notice after Esau, when, he, uh, when he's scared of Esau, Jacob, he runs across and he's by himself. And in verse 22, something weird happens. Let's look at verse 22. It says, During the night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, two slave women, and his 11 sons, crossed the ford of the Jabbok, and then he sent them across the stream along with all his possessions. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled him until daybreak. That is so random. So I know we're familiar with the story, some of us, but just think about it. This, this story, Jacob's by himself, and all of a sudden this guy comes out of nowhere and they start wrestling. Like, what a bizarre scene. And not only is it bizarre, but what's more bizarre is when you find out later who this man is. Who is this guy? Later we find out it's God. God comes and wrestles this man, wrestles Jacob. And what's even weirder is this is Jacob, like, I'm so depressed. And then God comes, I'm here. And they start like wrestling. It's like, what in the world? What is happening here? In the Old Testament, God makes several appearances to different people. 
He appears as a voice, as a burning bush, as like earthquake. Never does he appear as a wrestler. Why does he come to Jacob as a wrestler and starts wrestling him? And it only makes sense when you understand who Jacob is. Do you know what the word, the name Jacob means? In the Hebrew is Jacob. This is what it means. The one who grabs. Because that's when he was born, he was grabbing his twin brother's ankle. So it's like he's always grabbing. He's like, ah, Jacob, the one who grabs. And this isn't just his name. This is his whole life. Jacob was always grabbing things for himself. He grabbed Esau's ankles. He could be the firstborn. When he wasn't the firstborn, he grabbed his birthright and took it from Esau. He grabbed the blessing from his father. When he wanted to get married, he grabbed Rachel to be his wife. When he was working for Laban, he grabbed the different flocks for himself. He was always grabbing things to advantage himself in his life. And how did his life turn out because of that? Every relationship was dysfunctional. His marriage was dysfunctional because he grabbed Rachel, but there was also Leah. He was married to two women and it was just broken marriage. His work was dysfunctional. Him and his uncle were not cool because he was always grabbing things for himself. And his family's messed up. Him and Esau are not cool because of all the ways he grabbed. And that's why what's interesting is this is Jacob always grabbing. In verse 27, this is why this is significant. The man or God, he asked Jacob for his name. Like, what's your name? And it's not like the man's wrestling, God's wrestling, going, wait, by the way, who are you? Like, what's your, that's not what's going on. He's asking his name because even though the God knows who Jacob is, he wants Jacob to know who Jacob is. Remember, the word Jacob means to grab. So I imagine it's almost like the scenes like this. God's asking Jacob, so what's your name? Who are you? And Jacob's submitting for the first time, I'm the guy who grabs. I'm the guy who's always taking things to advantage myself. Jacob is admitting who he is. And when you experience the wall, this is what God is inviting us to experience for us. You're becoming, in this moment, for the first time, become aware of your present and to accurately see yourself for the first time in your whole life. There's a famous essay by C.S. Lewis. It's called How to Get Along with Difficult People. And I've referenced this before, but he pretty much says, oh, we could save the quote, not yet. He pretty much says, um, everybody has a fatal flaw. Uh, And what he means by a fatal flaw is, uh, just to give an example, imagine you and a group of friends are hanging together. Imagine one of your friends doesn't show up. I bet you if I asked you, hey, you're that one friend who didn't show up, what, what, what do you think about that person? What's like the worst quality about that person who didn't show up? I bet you all of you would say something similar. Oh, she talks so much, or oh, she's a little self-absorbed, or very manipulative, or kind of angry. Like you guys will all say something similar because that person has a fatal flaw. And what's even more interesting is if you were the friend not there, and I asked all of your friends, hey, what's, what's, what's your issue? I bet you they would all say the same thing. Because Lewis says, we all have something called the fatal flaw. It's on the screen. Now we can just show the quote. This is what Lewis says. He says, quote, it is important to realize that there is some really fatal flaw in you, something which gives the others just that same feeling of despair which their flaws give you. And it is almost certainly something you don't know about, which everyone notices except the person who has it. And he keeps going. He says, but why, you ask? Don't others tell me? Believe me, they have tried to tell you over and over again, and you just couldn't take it. And even the faults you do know, you don't fully know. I used to think, and I still think to this day, that I'm a generally gracious person. You know why I think that? If you are serving with me or you're working with me, if you come 10 minutes late, I never get annoyed. I'm like, it's all good. We're all late. No worries. 
if you say something kind of like rude, like in a way that's not nice, I'll rarely be like, hey, that's rude. I'll be like, it's all good. Probably had a bad day. That's just what's going on in my brain. I'm totally cool with minor offenses against me. But here's one thing I noticed about myself too. If you get mad at me about being late, or if you go like, hey, that was rude. Oh, that's, it's on. I'll be like, me? You know how many times you've been late? All these meetings? You know how rude you've been? I just let you have it. That's like, that's me. And again, I remember I was talking to somebody about this and they're like, huh, so it sounds like you're not cool with minor offenses. I was like, no, 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 I'm really cool. Like, I don't get mad. Like, oh, you, yeah, you don't get mad, but it sounds like you have like this bowl of wrath that you just pile on and you keep tally. And that bowl of wrath, it doesn't get poured out until that person says something about you. And then you go, whoosh, and you throw it all on them. And I remember I told my wife that, like, you know what, there's a, someone said this about me. My wife, like, she laughed, like, really uncomfortably loud. She's like, that is hilarious. I've been trying to tell you that for the longest time. I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Like, I am, like, a wrathful person. Like, I am filled with wrath. And then I'm, I've been blind to it this whole time. And I realized, you know, my wife probably tried to tell me for the longest time and so many others, this is my fatal flaw. And we're just blind to it. And all of you have it. You all do. If you don't know what yours is, just talk to me. I'll let you know. I'll tell you what people are saying about you. You all have something. It's causing destruction in your relationships. But the biggest thing is your ego is too fragile to handle it. You can't handle the pushback. You can't handle when people point it out because you know it's kind of true. And because of that, we're just not growing. Our relationships are dysfunctional. And God, what the wall is meant to do is, hey, take a good look at yourself. Yeah, everyone, your wife has her flaws. Your husband has his flaws. Your friend groups are all messed up. Your church is all messed up. And you could go to a different church, go to a different friend group, get a different marriage. Or it could be there's something about you that you just never paid attention to, and I'm getting your attention right now. But it takes like you losing so many relationships. It takes you reaching the bottom for you to finally pay attention to this fatal flaw that your parents, your friends, your spouse, they've been talking to you about. Are you aware of your present? Do you know what your fatal flaw is? It takes humility to really accept it. How do you gain humility like this? And that leads to the third thing. The third thing the wall teaches you. It teaches you to surrender. When you encounter the wall, you're supposed to surrender. Notice the man and Jacob, or the man, Jacob who's God, or the man who's God and Jacob, they're wrestling and it's a weird match. And probably the weirdest thing about it is how the match ends. Look at verse 25 to 26. It says, when the man saw he could not defeat Jacob, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. And then he said to Jacob, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And in verse 28, look what it says. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and you've prevailed. This is weird. Who won this wrestling match? Like who won? Was it God? Or was it Jacob? You could argue it's God because why? Because he's God. No one beats God. And, you know, yeah, God won. And plus, you know, he broke his hip. So, yeah, clearly God won. And yet, how come the man said he could not defeat Jacob? And why did the man say, why did God say, oh, Jacob, you prevailed? Meaning you won. Jacob won in this wrestling match. What in the world? Like, how do we make sense of this? Two quick thoughts. One is, well, first of all, we know that God was holding back 
It's like when I wrestle my kids, I'm like, oh, you're beating me. And they're like, oh, I'm so stronger. And at one point, I'm like, all right, time, time to be done. And I just like body slam them. It's like, you know, I'm holding back because let this wrestling match happen. That's what's most likely going on here. But then why does he say, oh, but you won, Jacob. You won the match. The key is, when did God say this? Did he say, oh, I can't, you, you're, I can't beat you. You won. Is that what he says? No, no. It's after he broke his hip. And as he's walking away, what does Jacob do? He grabs onto the man. He grabs onto God going, I'm not letting you go. And when that happens, he goes, you won. What does God mean by this? Throughout Jacob's life, he was grabbing everything to bring him happiness, blessing. And for the first time, Jacob is grabbing God. And as soon as Jacob grabs a hold of God and says, I'm not going to leave until you bless me, that's when God says, you finally won. You get it. Because it, but it took this moment where God had to break him, literally break him for Jacob to cling to God in this way and realize you're the one who I need to hold on to more than anything else in this world. And that's what happens when you experience the wall. God has to break you to let go, for you to let go of what you're clinging so tightly to so you can recognize who you need to cling to the most, which is God. That's why some of us, you know, you're clinging on to things, like your need for control, your reputation, your status, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whatever it is, you're clinging so tightly. And it could be at one point, if God is gracious, he's going to have to break you because you are clinging on to something far too deeply and you're not clinging on more enough to him. And because you're clinging on to those things, there's not love and peace and patience coming out. It's anxiousness, it's worry, it's stress. Because you are not going to find blessing clinging on to those things. And only the wall, only when God breaks you, does that get your attention and wake you up. I know for me, there have been several wall moments in my life, at least two that I've experienced. The first wall moment that I've experienced in my life, some, most, a lot of you guys know I've talked about this, was early in marriage, year two. Year one was wonderful. I loved marriage. Year two, terrible. Something went wrong. And I remember we fought so much in year two of our marriage. And there's so much you could say about why we fought. But I think if you were to generalize it, it's because each of us had a vision of what marriage should be like. Each of us had an idea of how the other spouse should serve the other. And when that wasn't happening, conflict started taking place. Our visions were colliding. And I realized for me, like, I really longed for a wife to be like this. She longed for the other. And what we had to learn was to let that go to surrender our vision of a spouse, our vision of a marriage, and accept and love the marriage that God has given unto us. That was really hard. That took over a year for us to really be at peace with, oh, this is marriage. I know a second wall that I experienced, it was actually pretty recent, back in 2020. This is when a lot of stuff happened in our church. This is when COVID happened. And I remember the main phrase I kept saying to myself was, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up to lead a church during a global pandemic. I didn't sign up for people to experience trauma in this season of life and I have to deal with it. I didn't sign up for people to get mad at me for these little things that I felt like, dude, how was that my fault? I didn't sign up for this stuff. And I just felt like this season of like, you know, I should have just been an educator because I was an educator before. You know, coding sounds awesome. Like coding is like just this thing. It seems like you just golf and code sometimes. Like that sounds great. Like I had all these like fantasies about like different workplaces. And I remember especially my biggest fantasy is, you know, it might be nice to go to like this, like just start over as a church planner because that was my original thought. I wanted to church plan out and so forth. But I remember I had to really examine and be like, you know, I think God, he's waking me up to these weird ambitions, this weird type of 
ego and pride that was buried beneath, underneath ministry that I had to just really deal with. Long and painful, but when I look back, I'm like, you know, I think God really rescued me in different ways in both his experiences. I truly believe if God did not make me confront my marriage in year two the way we did, me and my wife probably like in five years would be divorced already. We probably would have been divorced because it was just so much stuff building up. I am truly convinced if I didn't go through what I went through in 2020, I may have been a successful pastor, but I would have destroyed that church and destroyed myself. Because those wall moments were these moments where I think God had to force me to open up the deepest part of my life and allow him to enter into it, into that and surrender the things that I thought would give me joy. And I think for a lot of you, that might be why you're experiencing a wall. There's something you have to surrender and you're not surrendering to God because it's painful whatever it is God's asking you to surrender. You might have a vision of your marriage. You might have a vision of what your husband should be doing for you, what your wife should be doing for you. Why isn't he like this? Why isn't she like this? And you want to change them, but in reality, what God's trying to have you do is surrender. Let it go. You have a picture of marriage, but God, he actually is painting quite a different picture for you. For some of you, it's your desire for control. You're worried all the time because you need to have control. And for some reason right now, you have zero control over your life. Let it go. Let it go. Trust God for the first time, not just with your salvation, but with your daily life. Some of you have the sense of justice. This isn't right. Until they pay, I'm not going to be cool with them. Let it go. Surrender. Follow Jesus' way of grace and mercy. The wall tells us surrender yourself. Trust the way Jesus is leading you, and he is worthy to be trusted. Because remember what Jesus has done for you. He surrendered. He let go so that he could have life with you, so that you can have what you really need, which is his presence, more than those other things you are attaching to. The wall, it's so painful because you have to let go of something. And until you let that go, you're just going to never experience God the way you're meant to experience him. The wall teaches you surrender. And once you surrender, you know what happens? You know how you know you surrendered? Here's the sign, the fourth thing. Next slide. You walk with a limp. You learn to walk with a limp. After Jacob encounters God, do you notice what happens to Jacob? Look at verse 30, 31, what it says. Jacob then named the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. He said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, limping because of his hip. Jacob was an active dude before. Like he would be in our sports ministry like for sure, like any church sports ministry, because he would like walk all the time, traveling all these miles. He was fighting Esau. He's the wrestler. He shepherded for 20 years. But after this encounter with God, when God touches his hip and dislocates it, for the rest of his life, Jacob is going to be limping. He is limping forever because this is what happens when you have an encounter like, with God like this. You shall be limping. And this is the opposite of how churches and campus ministries and how a lot of people in our church talk about what it means to grow in spiritual maturity. When you think of someone who's spiritually mature, who's your image? What do you think about someone who's godly? Someone who's strong and confident and extroverted and invites people to their houses and has all the answers about the faith and they like assert themselves. And we look to those folks to follow. We think, yeah, that person's spiritually mature. I want him to be my mentor. I want her to be my mentor. It's like this incline of strength and confidence that we see. The way of God's kingdom is the complete opposite of that. You realize that, right? The way of the kingdom, it's not about strength, but what? Weakness, humility, not power, servanthood. 
It's those who lower themselves. You are closest to the kingdom. It's those who aren't aware or they're not, they're so not certain of themselves, but they are certain about just simply who God is. It's not those who assert themselves, it's they humble themselves. Those are the folks who God uses. Those are the folks who you know they encountered God. There's this brokenness inside of you. These days, I am so not impressed when I hear a good preacher. Like when someone's good at preaching, I'm like, that's, he's gifted. Or someone's like really theological or someone they're really popular or they have a lot of people followers on Instagram. That doesn't impress me at all. You know what's impressive is when people are humble. I'm like, hmm, he's a humble guy. Or when they respond to criticism, I'm like, hmm, let's see. I want to see how they respond to criticism. When you play basketball, I'm like, I'm watching you. I'm just like, oh, you didn't get the foul call. Huh, interesting. Let's see. You don't get recognition for all that you do. Or if you're someone when things don't go your way, that's the most interesting thing to me. Because that shows, have you really encountered God? When you've encountered the wall, and not just encountered, but you broke through, it's not just you've experienced something, but something happens to you. I love, this is a, just a brief snapshot of a couple of things that happened. Here's the first thing. You know you went through the wall when there's a greater level of brokenness in you. Less ego, less easily offended. You accept criticism. You don't take it personally. You know you broke through the wall when you have less of an ego, when you're broken. Here's the second thing, a greater appreciation for mystery. You understand that life is complicated. Not everybody is gonna do what you do. Life is a mystery, and you live with the, par- the tension of paradox. That's when you know, oh, you broke through the wall. Here's another sign. Thirdly, a deeper ability to wait for God. You have less control. You trust, you know, I don't know what's gonna happen, but God's leading me. You can wait. Here's our fourth one, a greater capability of detachment. You are less needy of the things you once needed. That career, that promotion, that salary, that person in your life. You want it, but you don't need it as much. And here's the last sign, a greater capacity to empathize. Before you go through suffering, it's very fascinating. We're, We're so dismissive of like high school kids' problems, of college kids' problems, of like young kids' problems. But it's fascinating. The more you suffer, you would think you'd be even more dismissive. Like, you think you know pain? Look at my pain. And, you know, you think that happens. But the people who go through the most suffering, they are the most empathetic people. And you know, like, you went through the wall when you are able to empathize with anybody. Because you know pain is pain. Have you gone through the wall? The wall leaves you limping. It leaves you humble. And one last thing that happens when you go through the wall, and we'll end with this, the wall... It builds a new community. Verse 32, notice how it ends. It's kind of a weird ending. It says, this is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is in the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. It doesn't sound like this archaic, like this is why we don't do this. Like it's like this weird ending that you go like, huh, okay, if you're an Israelite, I guess that's relevant because this doesn't apply to us. But if you pay attention to it a bit more, it's actually fascinating oh, all of Israel, they don't eat this part of an animal because of this story that happened with Jacob. How did they hear the story? Oh, Jacob told them. Jacob told everybody what happened, which is so the opposite of what we do. When you go through humiliation, when you go through a shameful moment, what do you do? You hide it. You bury that thing. But Jacob, that most humiliating moment of his life, he told everybody because he invited God into it. God redeemed it. And can you imagine if you're a part of a church or a community where you don't come presenting the best of yourself, highlighting your strengths, highlighting the good parts of your week, 
But if you're part of a community where the shameful part of ourselves, we're able to share the broken parts of ourselves that we bring to the community. Can you imagine what type of community that is? That's a community that God's going to use to minister to people. Because nobody gets impressed by your accolades. Nobody gets ministered when you advise them, like, hey, this is what I would do if I were you. People get impressed and ministered to when you're able to empathize with them, when you open your heart and what you went through, when you're not walking with strength but with weakness. That's the type of community that God powerfully uses. Imagine if that was our community, where we gather in community groups, we meet one-on-one, and we don't try to impress each other, we open ourselves to one another. This is what happens. This is the type of community that encounters the wall and breaks through it. And so can I encourage us, if you're in a place where you're stuck, you're spiritually stagnant, and you feel like this might be a wall moment in my life, it sucks, it's painful, but God, he's trying to do something beautiful. He's forming you far more deeply than you can ever do to yourself, and that's why he's coming in your life in a unique way to form you and to open yourself to him. And so before we participate in the Lord's Supper, one thing we like to do is we want to create space during the rest of the series of intentional prayer. And so if I could just lead us in a few prayer topics that we could just sit with whatever we feel like the Lord's speaking to us about and just come before him. For this first prayer topic, if I could invite us to consider, or any of you right now feel like you're at the wall. And again, it could be you're stuck You feel like, man, something's happening where I haven't been moving in my faith in a long time. Could it be God, he is confronting you to, hey, yeah, you have a past to deal with. You've been running for a long time. You have broken family, broken relationships. And you need to consider what's going on. Or it could be he's making you aware of your present. Like there's something happening right now that's being revealed. And maybe at this moment, we could just pause and just have a conversation with God. Asking him what he's trying to get us to pay attention to. And so if I can invite us to pause and be still and just consider what God is trying to say to us at this moment. So let's take a moment to pray and respond and I'll 